software applications running within a host operating system need to be isolated. Isolation prevents security vulnerabilities, such as one application accessing the memory of another. In modern cloud environments, a single physical host might be running multiple virtual machines on top of a hypervisor. Those virtual machines might be divided up into containers. The different virtual machines and containers might be operated by different users, or even different companies. Gvisor is a container sandbox runtime open-sourced by Google. Gvisor runs containers in a new user space kernel and provides a security system with low overhead. Gvisor improves on the previous security properties of containers and multi-tenancy. Michael Pratt and Yoshi Tamura work on Gvisor at Google, and they join the show to talk through the purpose of Gvisor and the engineering around the project. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is sponsored by Datadog. Datadog integrates seamlessly with more than 200 technologies, including Kubernetes and Docker, so you can monitor your entire container cluster in one place. Datadog's new live container view provides insights into your container's health, resource consumption, and deployment in real time. Filter to a specific Docker image or drill down by Kubernetes service to get fine-grained visibility into your container infrastructure. Start monitoring your container workload today with a 14-day free trial, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog to try it out. That's softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog to try it out and get a free t-shirt. Thank you, Datadog. Michael Pratt and Yoshi Tamura, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thank you for having us again. Yes, we'll be talking about Gvisor and container isolation today. First, I want to talk in the abstract about isolation. What does it mean for software to be isolated? Yeah, so, I mean, I think isolation is a sort of very wide-ranging topic. I think in the context of and container sandboxing and, and the sort of areas that Gvisor is in, is we're specifically talking about preventing sort of unwanted interactions between different services on the same physical machine. So if you're running two completely separate containers, they shouldn't be able to access each other's data or memory. They shouldn't be able to crash one another, things like that. There's sort of other forms of isolation beyond that when you're talking about, you know, do network services perform ACL checks on each other, but that's kind of out of scope. I would also add, like, you know, we're talking about sandbox in general with the modern containers, but if you look at the, the back, the, the Hitcher computer, it was always about, okay, these are expensive. How can we share it? And once you wanted to share, a, you know, such kind of a precious resource, then you need to have, have some sort of isolation. And you can think about that's kind of a history of the operating system in general. Okay. What are the benefits of isolating our workloads? Yeah, so I mean, when we're talking about isolating workloads, there's primarily, I guess the key benefit we're talking about is when we have different untrusted workloads, right? So if we have two workloads from two completely different users and we're sharing the same machine for these resource efficiency perspectives, 
we don't want them to be able to access each other's data, right? You shouldn't, one customer shouldn't be able to steal another customer's information. To a certain degree, I think it's, uh, you know, uh, to add on what Michael just said, it's all about, you know, as if multiple users are like occupying, you know, that particular resource, right? Like from operator perspective or even from user perspective, you don't necessarily want to pay the entire cost of that such resource, but you don't want to compromise the sort of usability or kind of accessibility to those resources. So the role of this isolation or the benefit of the isolation is that, yeah, you're going to share it underneath it, but you're not going to realize it, you know, until something goes wrong. Let's talk a little bit more about the risks of workloads that are not properly isolated. There's a term called breaking out. Could you define what that means and how that poses a risk to a application environment? Can we assume that when you say breakout, it's more specifically about the container breakout or any, especially the container, like a modern container like Docker and any Linux-based sort of a container? Sure, sure, that's fine. Great. Yes. Yeah, so, so when we're talking about breaking out, I mean, usually what we're discussing is we have defined up front some sort of access that this container should have. It has certain files it can access, it can access certain network resources, so on and so forth. If it has some way to access resources it shouldn't have access to, maybe other containers on the system then that's sort of when we, we say it's broken out of its defined boundary. And basically, you know, the mechanism that used for these container isolation is fairly complex. And, you know, so downside of that such kind of resource and as a consequence of this breakout is that, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you're not supposed to be seeing what other users are doing. But if you, it's a, a malicious attacker exploits this, Basically, that person can look into or have control over other people's workloads, and worst case, the entire system. That is the problem of this container breakout. There are numerous ways of isolating our workloads. Before we talk specifically about containers and GVisor, let's talk a little bit about virtual machines. Describe how virtual machines isolate workloads. Yeah, so a virtual machine sort of at the high level is providing, as the name says, a complete virtual sort of physical machine in which a full guest operating system is run. So like you're running Linux inside of this virtual machine, which is running on a physical machine that's also running Linux or some other hypervisor. And so at a high level, you sort of, you have some sort of system API that any sort of application can access. And that's, for a Linux process, is all the system calls it can make and so on. For a virtual machine, that's the virtualized hardware resources it can access, any sort of hyper calls that it might have to, to talk to the, the host. And so the way a virtual machine is isolating the workloads is it's giving a distinct machine to each of these workloads and then creating as much of a limited API as it can for that machine so that there's a lower, sort of smaller attack surface for it to go after. And also, uh, keep in mind that virtual machines are actually the most, like, you know, one of the oldest concepts, if you look back to kind of, or open up the textbook, because chopping up the machine was the most, perhaps, simplest way of doing, and it had a much more stronger sort of a indication or limitation even, because once you chop it, you're not going to change it. It's a machine still. And to overcome the, con you know, sort of a limitation, the operating system sort of get developed. But what interesting happening here now is that 
as a sort of extreme of that, and we started seeing that, you know what, we do want to have a stronger isolation for even for containers that's built on top of those kind of abstractions. And we're, you know, in this kind of fancy world of what will be the kind of interesting way to do the container isolation in a proper way. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the resource consumption of our different isolation paradigms. We have virtual machines, we have containers. My understanding is that virtual machines consume more resources than a container does. Could you contrast the overhead of these two operating environments? Actually, I think the statement you made is more about impression. What I mean by that is those are actually two different layers, right? Virtual machines are actually one layer, you know, like a couple layers below of the containers. And therefore, what, why people say virtual machines are heavy is because even if you actually chop a particular box or resource as a virtual machine to run your application, to run your container, you need a guest operating system in that virtual machine, right? That is a fixed cost, right? And all the virtual device simulation, those are going to be the fixed cost versus in a natural, like I'm not talking about GVISH, I'm talking specifically more like a traditional native container. In that case, all you have is the host and you have the operating system and you just share that kind of fixed resources, a fixed cost among a bunch of processing containers. That's probably why people think containers and also, you know, containers are much more lightweight than the virtual machine because virtual machine always come with the additional fixed cost after the isolation and just a kind of high level but i hope that makes sense it does make sense so if we're thinking about the virtualized environment like let's talk about a purely virtualized environment there are some approaches to security in this virtualized environment there are things called seccomp se linux app armor Describe the approaches to implementing security, because it sounds like the main thing we're getting from isolation is this security. So what are the ways that we can get security in a purely virtualized environment? Let me just uh, add a little bit more clarity on, you know, the technology you just mentioned, especially the SecComp and AppArmor and SE Linux. The reason because those are actually on top of the existing operating system, not necessarily virtualization per se. And what I mean by virtualization is more about chopping up the hardware or leveraging a kind of a CPU support to actually provide that kind of a stronger boundary. So AppArm, SNX, you know, mandatory, we call it Mac, you know, mandatory access control. And the SecCon filter is more about the kind of a reducing attack surface between the application and the HOSA Linux operating system. With that, I'll pass it, you know, you know pass the microphone over to Michael to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So I can sort of describe sort of how those work. And I would also say, I think it's important to note that these setcom app armor and so on they're not really specific to a virtualized environment you can you know if you're running on a bare metal machine you can also use these to isolate your workloads but at a fundamental level what all of the technologies you mentioned do is they allow you to sort of implement a specific sort of whitelist set of rules of what an application is allowed to do so like i mentioned earlier you have sort of this system api that an application can access for normal container it's the, the system calls and files and things that that, that container has access to. In SecComp, for instance, you can go through and specifically say, these system calls are not allowed. I don't think they're secure or you know, there's, there's some risk in them, and so I'm going to just block them. Similarly with 
AppArmor SE Linux allows sort of putting access controls on files and other sorts of resources. And so they provide a good way that you can take an individual application and put a pretty tight boundary around it to sort of limit that system API it has access to. That does come with some downsides, primarily that you really do have to specifically build your filters and whitelist around that one application you have. It's a lot harder to come up with a sort of general purpose whitelist and anything that you are blocking, that application just sort of fundamentally can't use because it's blocked. So you said this is security technology that's agnostic of a virtualized environment. So is this this is something you apply on a per-process basis? Pretty much, yes. All right. So if you do have the kind of knowledge about particular application, right, you don't need to actually expose that other kind of attack surface because that could, you know, lead to a further, you know, compromisation. So it's actually these kind of mechanisms are all implemented in operating system, and it's actually more geared toward like, okay, if I understand applicate this, you know, the properties of application, then I'm going to apply. So it's not necessarily virtualized, you know, or virtualization. It's actually more about you know, controlling the interface, and controlling the capability in between the op- you know application operating system. I think I'd like to just ask you guys for a brief overview of the architectural stack of a typical host. So we've got the host machine, we've got a hypervisor, we've got virtual machines, we've got containers, and then there's some layers that are in between these things. Could you just paint a picture for the listeners who are less familiar with these architectures? What does the stack look like? Yeah, just keep in mind, we're talking all about various technologies and, you know, sort of implementations that were sort of developed from different contexts. So I can totally understand from a user perspective, it is overwhelming. So I'm just going to list up from the bottom stack and just make sure that, you know, a user doesn't have to use all of them. A user can actually, you know, pick and choose, but I'll just list all the stack in words so that we can actually have a kind of clear, like, you know, like a TCP IP networking as well. Like if you have a kind of, you know, bunch of things, you get confused, but I'll try to kind of, you know, like layer things from the bottom. Okay. Got it. So at the bottom, you have the hardware apparently, and this hardware, depending on a processor and an architecture, you may or may not have the virtualization support. And there are different kind of virtualization, but I'm not going into too much. But usually on top of that hardware, before the operating system comes into play, usually there could be a hypervisor, so-called hypervisor, that because it, it needs to kind of chop up the machine. So it has to kind of sit on top of the hardware. But again, if you're not going to use a virtual machine, this hypervisor is not needed. So it may or may not exist. Sometimes people call it bare metal. There's no hypervisor. Alrighty. Then on top of that, there is an operating system, which will basically say, oh, I got the machine. I got the machine. And my role is to provide an abstraction or like a shared resources among the applications. And so there's an operating system on top. And then there comes the container before getting into the application. Container, again, is sort of, I'll just say it's a little bit kind of a, you know, might be wrong, but an extension to the traditional operating system, which will actually provide a more like a, you know, a little bit of virtualized view to the application as if it has kind of some kind of more like, you know, oh, as if it owned an operating system. Like, because, you know, if from an application perspective, you won't be able to see the other people. For example, if I have Yoshi's app, I won't be able to see Michael's app, you know, on the other side, or even I don't know, Michael is a user. 
those are kind of, you know, the container abstraction that comes on, you know, comes on top of operating system. And then you have the finally the process or the application, which has, okay, this is a unit of an execution on top of the operating system. So that, these are kind of how I will list the basic stuff in the first place. As a software engineer, chances are you've crossed paths with MongoDB at some point, whether you're building an app for millions of users or just figuring out a side business. As the most popular non-relational database, MongoDB is intuitive and incredibly easy for development teams to use. Now with MongoDB Atlas, you can take advantage of MongoDB's flexible document data model as a fully automated cloud service. MongoDB Atlas handles all of the costly database operations and administration tasks that you'd rather not spend time on, like security and high availability and data recovery and monitoring and elastic scaling. Try MongoDB Atlas today for free by going to mongodb.com se to learn more. Go to mongodb.com se and you can learn more about MongoDB Atlas as well as support Software Engineering Daily by checking out the new MongoDB Atlas serverless solution for MongoDB. That's mongodb.com se. Thank you to MongoDB for being a sponsor. go a little bit deeper into this typical stack, there's something called a virtual machine monitor. A virtual machine monitor allows virtualized hardware to be exposed to a guest kernel that would spin up on top of the underlying host. Describe what a virtual machine monitor is in more detail. Got it. Let me take a stab and then, you know, pass it over to Michael. So I mentioned hypervisor, and I think you're spot on that I didn't, you know, kind of, uh, you know, skip the VMM, you know, virtual machine monitor to make it simple. But usually hypervisor and virtual machine monitor are kind of, you know, work together. What I mean by that is hypervisor is there to kind of chop up mostly the CPU-oriented sort of resources, for example, let's take a look at a KVM. KVM itself is a hypervisor, kernel-based virtual machine that works with Linux to provide a hypervisor capability. Now, from a guest operating system, it's great, but it still needs to be sort of have access to virtual devices other than CPU, other than memory, such as networking, disk, right? And display, there are a bunch of, bunch of devices, keyboard, microphone, you got everything. Usually those are actually, you know, handled by a component called QEMU, Quick Emulator, I think. It was initially a emulator, but it became a virtual machine monitor as it evolved. So after the hypervisor says, okay, I'm going to, this guy should be, you know, having its own virtual device, but this hypervisor itself cannot provide that abstraction, and then it will forward it to QEMU or any kind of virtual machine monitor to, again, provide a device view beyond CPU and memory. That's kind of how they split the role, and I think that's kind of common architecture that we're seeing in the modern hypervisor and VMM kind of layout. Yeah, I, I think one thing to also note when talking about this is usually, you know, with virtualization, we're, we're often talking about 
hardware virtualization, you know, things like Intel's VMX, the sort of extensions on the CPU that support virtualization. The important thing to note about hardware virtualization extensions is they don't provide all of the capabilities to create a virtual machine. Like Intel's capabilities are mostly about providing a sort of additional privilege level so we can have this like privileged guest operating system, but it doesn't actually have ownership of the whole machine, but it doesn't provide virtualized hardware, for instance. And so that's where things like QEMU or other VMMs come in is that they're in software sort of emulating what that virtual hardware would do that's not provided by the actual like CPU virtualization. Okay. Let's start to move the conversation towards containers. Containers have been around since before Docker. We know that Docker containers provide us some kind of isolation. There has been a legacy of different container isolation models, as I understand. How has that model of isolation within a container changed over time? Yeah, so I think when we're looking at containers historically, they've sort of, I think, evolved over time. There's not really one thing that I would necessarily call a container. So you you can go back and I would say, you want to say like the original container is just sort of the idea of uh, Chirrut, which is like, it's it's a Unix feature from, I don't know, probably the 80s, where you can say, this folder now looks like it's the root for my file system. And so now you can sort of make the file system look different from an application, which is kind of the basics of what containers still do today. But that was only doing very simple file system operations. It was fairly easy to break out of. I didn't perform other sorts of isolation. And so it's kind of evolved from there. And much, much more recently, we've had newer forms of container isolation. You know, all the features that modern Linux containers use that each sort of add different types of isolation. So you have, you're adding isolation to file systems, you're adding isolation between being able to even see other processes, you're adding sort of like CPU memory constraint isolation and so on. I think, you know, on top of what just Michael said, right, like the complexity probably of the container as a sort of a technology and the history is, is that it comes from more on the incremental part. And I just wanted to know that actually Google has been sort of at the center in, on the modern sort of container development. For example, C groups, I think it's in the like 2007 to 8 timeframe. And the context there is that it kind of predates me even, but I knew it. <laughs> the context there is that, you know, to squeeze out the most you know, cost efficient infrastructure, you need containers, you need operating system attraction. However, you need to augment the operating system capability at that time of Linux to provide a good resource isolation. How that's, I understand how C group got introduced and how, you know, the Linux container gradually evolved. The part that I, you know, Docker is a great sort of kind of phenomenal kind of, you know, milestone in my opinion, because the traditional Linux container did have sort of an isolation capability, like Michael mentioned, but what was sort of a lacking was usability. The great part of Docker, in, in my opinion, was the sort of revolutionary sort of, you know, usability came into play in addition to all the sort of, a, you know, kind of geeky, you know, isolation, like, you know, technology stuff. It became more like a usable thing and it became more like a application, you know, deployment unit that people didn't have to worry about how to set up a container or I wanted to just deploy my app as if I'm running a virtual machine. 
I think that is a sort of, you know, kind of inflection point if you look at back what happened you know, throughout the last nearly 20 years. Hmm. I think you alluded to this idea that containers are not really a uh, like a fixed thing. The idea of a container, from what I understand, is an abstraction unit that sits on an operating system and divides up the file system resources and the CPU resources in some way that allows people to make more efficient use of a host operating system. And then there's many, many, many ways that we could do that. Would you say that's an accurate description of what a container actually is? I would agree with that. And I think you forgot one another important is memory. Memory was is also a very precious ah, resource. Right. Right. And in case of virtual machine, you need to pre-allocate such memory because it is a machine, right? On the other hand, if it's an application or you know, application meaning container, if you actually don't even need a memory or if the application doesn't reclaim a memory, the operating system doesn't have to, right? Why would you? You don't have to. And if it's a memory is not actually used, it can actually reclaim and swap it out and swap it in whenever necessary. These are all very strong capability that the operating system, meaning containers as by nature, has. And I think that's sort of a, another, you know, I'm already jumping, you know, probably, you know, going ahead a little bit, but that's another, you know, it's a, one of the key motivation for GVisor because we did want to, you know, offer a stronger, I said, we did want to overcome with the limitation of container had in terms of isolation perspective, but we didn't want to lose that very strong capability of the containers because the resource efficiency is so critical for us. Right. Yeah. We can just imagine if we tried to run a multi-user environment in an Apple operating system, Mac operating system, in, in a naive way, you can just imagine, oh, I can access the same file system as Joe, and you know, I can look at Joe's files, I can look at the processes that Joe is running. This would be the most naive form of running containers in the same environment, running two different users' workloads, and that would obviously not be preferable. So we can see that we need to do something around shielding these workloads from each other. So what are the security issues that we have seen in the wild from the current containerized environments? Why is the issue of workload isolation important and how has a lack of uh, proper isolation impacted people? Do you mind, uh, because it's a very good question, and I think there are a ton of uh, probably cases. So uh, if we, you don't mind if we just kind of pin down to one particular case to kind of highlight example. It's not the only example, but just, sure. a, you know, like a highlight. Maybe sure, absolutely. Dirty Cal is probably the... Yeah, so one particular example of this is a vulnerability. I think this was in 2016. 16, yes. It was a vulnerability called Dirty Cow, which was basically at a high level sort of a race condition in the... Linux kernels handling of copy on write memory. And it's basically, copy on write memory is a way that the kernel saves resources, avoids duplicating memory in a bunch of different processes. And then when someone changes it and changes their own personal copy, it gets moved to its own private version so no one else sees it. And there was a race condition where basically you could avoid that copy and end up seeing someone else's private memory. And so two different processes would be able, one process could basically read another process memory that it wasn't supposed to be able to, and that could give it access to any data it has. And so this is kind of 
this is just one of many examples of, it was a vulnerability in the Linux kernel. It was, I think, fixed fairly easily, but it was still there for a long time. It had to be discovered. And it was sort of one of these issues of we're sharing this, this kernel resource, which is great for efficiency, but does have this issue that when some issue is found, like this single bug is potentially letting you break out of your containers. Like Jeff, like we discussed last time, I think it's more like a trend that we're sort of being preparing for. What we mean by that is no matter what, the importance of the operating system or the kernel will remain or even be, you know, broader. Like there are more and more features coming in. In that situation, the possibility of such bugs that lead to uh, security incidents may increase. Thus, looking at the past art is, or, you know, is just a more like a example and way to understand a kind of the potential threat. It doesn't necessarily mean the same thing would happen. However, it's more about in the future as things grow, we don't know where the new holes are, or even you know the holes that are never uncovered yet. I think that's why we're sort of being careful. We wanted to use container for resource efficiency, but we need to start thinking about how can we add additional shield, like you mentioned, to prevent or like augment the trend that we're seeing. Before we get to GVisor specifically, there is a model for container isolation where every container gets its own virtual machine. This is something called hypervisor containers. Why would we want to give every container its own virtual machine? And and is this a compelling model for workload isolation? I think it's, again, natural direction to a certain degree. What they, you know, a relevant technology project or product try to do is that, you know what, we're just going to have a strong isolation boundary by using the virtualization's hard isolation capability. And I think it's a sort of a, you know, one design, one choice to go down the path by adding, you know, by chopping up, you know, by allocating container into only, you know, uh, you know, sorry, allocating that container into a VM, meaning that, you know, a VM can only have one container, one unit, one user there. And then even something goes wrong, just contain with that virtual machine so that we can protect the rest from it. It's a sort of, you know, on the high level principle that I can see. So Yoshi, we explored GVisor on a previous episode, but I'd like to go deeper into it. In this episode, let's start with just a simple overview of GVisor for people who have not heard that episode. What is GVisor? Okay, let me take that and I'll let Michael to kind of add more to the details. So GVisor, in a nutshell, they're very, very high level focus on three things. Stronger isolation or defense in depth and the resource efficiency of the container and the speed and also the without modifying the applications. So basically it comes down to strong security or defense in depth, resource efficiency and speed. And then the kind of ease of use in a very, you know, big bar three pillar. We actually say this in the website too. And going down to the mechanism to make that happen. So I'm not talking, you know, I'm going to think starting moving from a concept to the actual implementation. We sit between the application or container and a host operating system. And we provide 
a separate independent kernel. And I think it's important to say this clearly because I realize that for people who are assessing these technologies, this sort of isolation kind of resonates very well. We do offer a GVisor kernel called Sentry that will emulate the behavior of the host operating system so that the container running on top of GVisor does not necessarily kind of directly talk to the host operating system, which will significantly reduce attack surface and even separate the world. So it's like we're virtualizing operating system, the online operating system with GVisor. So we're not virtualizing the machine. We're virtualizing the operating system in a much more secure fashion. Okay. Michael, is there anything you would want to add to that description of GVisor? Yeah, I think that was a really great description. One thing I guess... I would add is that there's sort of two key principles that we're sort of following with having our own user space kernel that that is sitting in between the application and the kernel. And that is, you know, I've mentioned this, like the system API before that we're trying to sort of reduce the attack surface on the hosts and basically on anything outside of the container. And we're doing that through a sort of multi-layered approach where basically the applications only get to talk to our kernel. And so because they can only talk to our kernel, they can't directly even sort of attempt to attack the host kernel. And then there's an additional boundary where our kernel does itself talk to the host kernel, but through a more limited API. So like we talked about setcomp earlier, our kernel sits inside of its own setcomp sandbox that limits the things it's allowed to do. And so even were someone to find a vulnerability in the century and sort of gain control of that, they're still sitting inside of a sandbox with a reduced surface to the host that they now need to figure out how to get around. Yeah, the, what Michael just said is really important because we always being kind of view GVisor as one entity, which is absolutely true. But within that GVisor as a sort of entity, there are even two layers of isolation. And that's sort of a, the standard that we've been using inside at Google, meaning like Michael said, even an attacker can compromise the GVisor kernel called Sentry. That is still under a very limited, tight environment. An attacker has to go, do a lot of work to even go through that to eventually even talk to the host kernel. And I think that's kind of a multiple layer defense is the kind of the one of you know key principle at the implementation of GVisor. GVisor is a fairly low-level technology relative to where many people spend their time. So it may not be intuitive where in the stack this thing actually sits. We talked a little bit about the high-level architecture of, you know, virtual machines and containers, and I think people are starting to get a sense for kind of how that fits together. And as I said, you've given an outline for that. Where in that stack does GVisor sit? It's an amazing question, and I will actually have to admit that GVisor is an interesting thing in a way that it can sit in a multiple place. All the, all the, you know, it's go one by one. So first of all, consider GVisor more like a new paradigm, I will say. The reason is because if I just try to apply to the kind of vertical stack, it could move around like in multiple places from a technical viewpoint. So consider more like a GVisor new kind of paradigm that we're seeing the container world. But let me just go back to the, you know, that sort of a vertical step very quickly. In GVisor, we have two modes. We have two modes which work totally differently. A KVM mode, 
right? As it's the KVM. So would you advise you said like it's not a hypervisor, what you know, but you have KVM, what does it mean? That's a kind of one of the FAQs we get. So I'll start from there. So in case of a KVM mode, it will probably sit at the hypervisor and then there's Gvisor coming in to back to the operating system layer. What it means is that the container is contained within this sort of virtualized environment. It's not a virtual machine, but it's a virtualized environment using the you know virtualization technology that we discuss at the hypervisor level. Now the application will think, okay, I have my own like you know own, own kernel and it's all virtual. You know the application cannot sit inside a virtualized environment, but it is in the virtualized environment. To implement that operating system view, it goes back to the it will level up up level to the operating system layer again you know again because it's sitting is a kind of user line kernel and then all the flows will go through and come back so it's kind of i mean i think i need a whiteboard to describe that <laughs> right it goes down all to the bottom it comes back and then come down you come back to that container world again so that's what we're seeing like you know if i you know, i think this is really the one of the kind of challenge part of understanding gvisor so i was just saying think of it as a pattern like it's a little bit better to say so, so that you can detach from the vertical layer. But from a mechanism perspective, go down to the bottom, and then I'll come back to the hostile system view, and then you know pipe through it. That's a KVM mode. The P-Trace mode is a lot more simpler because it does sit probably between the container and the operating system in a nice way. The operating system, the, the system calls from the container is intercepted out of the operating system, redirected to the user and kernel, and then the rest of the thing will similarly follow to the host operating system for the safe calls. So, you know, it's probably nicer to just say that, yeah, it sits between the container and the host operating system. But you can imagine this two modes already kind of touches around in multiple layers of sort of a, you know, stack that we just described. So consider more GVISE, like agnostic to those architecture. The whole point was to sort of a somehow insert a virtualized operating system view to the containers so that it does not have direct access to the underlying resources, which is operating system in this case. You probably do not enjoy searching for a job. Engineers don't like sacrificing their time to do phone screens, and we don't like doing whiteboard problems and working on tedious take-home projects. Everyone knows the software hiring process is not perfect, but what's the alternative? TripleByte is the alternative. TripleByte is a platform for finding a great software job faster. TripleByte works with 400-plus tech companies, including Dropbox, Adobe, Coursera, and Cruise Automation. TripleByte improves the hiring process by saving you time and fast-tracking you to final interviews. At triplebyte.com slash SEDaily, you can start your process by taking a quiz. And after the quiz, you get interviewed by Triplebyte if you pass that quiz. And if you pass that interview, you make it straight to multiple on-site interviews. And if you take a job, you get an additional $1,000 signing bonus from Triplebyte because you use the link triplebyte.com slash SEDaily. That $1,000 is nice. But you might be making much more, since those multiple on-site interviews would put you in a great position to potentially get multiple offers, and then you could figure out what your salary actually should be. 
Triplebyte does not look at candidates' backgrounds, like resumes and where they've worked and where they went to school. Triplebyte only cares about whether someone can code. So I'm a huge fan of that aspect of their model. This means that they work with lots of people from non-traditional and unusual backgrounds. To get started, just go to triplebyte.com slash sedaily and take a quiz to get started. There's very little risk, and you might find yourself in a great position getting multiple on-site interviews from just one quiz and a Triplebyte interview. Go to triplebyte.com slash sedaily to try it out. Thank you to Triplebyte. When I spin up a container that includes the protections of GVisor, what happens? Where is the GVisor added and, and what is allocated to give me the protections of GVisor? I see. I think you're talking about kind of, I think it's good to go through the boot flow, like a launch process of GVisor. I think Michael can talk about it more. Yeah. So when GVisor starts up, fundamentally, GVisor starts and it's just a normal Linux process. So like your, your container runtime or like Docker, for instance, starts this GVisor process and it's going to sort of initialize itself to be a kernel. So it's given like, here's the file system you're going to serve. Here's like the command line of the program that should actually be run. And what it's going to do is it has, you know, there's a bunch of internal kernel data structures that get initialized but aren't particularly interesting. They don't really do much per se, but you know, we prepare, we have, the, the kernel has its own memory management system, it has its own virtual file system. So that's all sorts of, sort of gets set up. And then we actually go and, you know, as Yoshi mentioned, we have like KVM versus Ptrace, and we're sort of setting up that execution environment. Basically, what GVisor operates on is some sort of application execution environment where it can sort of map memory into that environment, and it can run code in that environment. And that might be like a virtual machine, like vCPU thread, that might be a little ptraced process for the, the ptrace. And so we set up one of those, we grab the binary from the file system that's going to be run, we load it into memory, and we sort of start executing it in that environment, and then can start handling calls that come back to us as they come. Jeff, the interesting part of this whole thing is that, you know, whenever we talk about how to improve GVisor, the way that we intercept the syscalls is somewhat, you know, limitless to a certain degree in a way that as if there are new architecture, if there's a new environment, there probably will be a different way of, you know, capturing. And the reason I said paradigm in such way is that as far as there is a way that the platform owner can provide us the right way to do it, then basically GVisor will come to it and say, yep, oh, we can just hook it up so that we can provide a virtualized view. We're kind of agnostic to the way that we intercept, you know, the syscalls. Cool. What is the overhead of GVisor? How much additional penalty is this adding to my system? It's very challenging to quantify the overhead. However, please take a look at the the document and gvisor.dev because we have done an intensive sort of analysis about that. It's kind of difficult to convey it entirely <laughs> through the, the podcast. Uh, so I recommend go going, reading that doc. In addition to the report, we also open source the sort of 
tools and the process that how we measure the data so that it can be, you know, it's reproducible and also it can be applied to other mechanisms if one, you know, if anyone wants to do. So I will recommend that in general from my blog post or the talk and next for any sort of, you know, kind of a CPU oriented sort of workloads, it's just within like roughly 2%. Depending on the system cost, sort of a frequency, right? If you have like a FFmpeg sort of a transcoding workload, which will buffer the kind of a data and then elegantly kind of a nicely batch the IOs, the overhead will be around like five five percent ish. Versus if you have a very sort of you know short interval, like a frequent IO hitting kind of application for whatever reasons, then overhead could be around 30%. So it varies a lot, but I don't want to sort of, you know, say this is the only single digit, rather I wanted to point to our gvisor.dev because we have done the analysis in a much more co- in a cohesive way. Yeah, and, and I think one thing I would add real quick is, I think Yoshi alluded to this, is that the primary place where you see overhead added is in that cost of actually intercepting the application's calls to the operating system. In other areas, things like if something's purely on CPU, you're basically getting no overhead because it gets to just run. And also because GVisor is running as a sort of normal process on the host, things like its startup timer is very quick. Your memory usage is usually very, very similar to running without a sandbox. And so it, it really generally that sort of system calls tend to be the the area we're most interested in looking at. Yeah, but Jeff, I wanted to sort of, you know, because we like talking about futures a little bit, right? Virtual machines are relatively new. I mean, it's just probably 15 or like roughly a virtual machine within Intel CPU, let's say. Before that, before like around 2003, there was no way to do the, you know, today's virtual machines. It was only either emulating with QMU or Zenish sort of para-virtualization and Intel added that VTX capability and kept improving. What I'm trying to say here is that actually GVisor is also a very new paradigm in that sense. And the, the overhead that we're talking here is just because it's a little bit different from today's architecture. Like the traditional, you know, the current virtual machine you're seeing used to be. So in other words, if this turn, that's why I want to call it more like a paradigm. If this is something useful and if we can actually get support from underlying hardware, this is not. This cannot be the kind of fundamental problem in terms of kind of limitation. You know, in terms of performance, perspective. Okay, let's illustrate with an example. So let's say I have an environment where there are two workloads that are running. Give me a description for how those workloads would be further isolated by GVisor relative to a world without GVisor. Yeah. So in this world we're talking is basically. It's all about we're reducing the attack surface on the host. So, you know, the application has, I don't know what the number is now, like 350 system calls it can make to Linux. And they have all sorts of options. In addition to that, there's lots of special interesting files that have interesting uh, sort of surface in the kernel. Without GVisor, this workload can just sort of touch any of those. And if they have a bug, you know, maybe it can exploit them. Let me, uh, when, okay. let, let me, you know, back up a little bit. I think, Jeff, you're probably talking about how kind of apart these two containers could be. So let me, you know, take a little bit of high level, you know, kind of a stab at it. So we talk about, you know, I think, you know, virtual machine world, you get the virtual machine, you get the kernel. So you have a kind of a, you know, okay, easy to understand kind of way. Gvisor, you can apply the same, actually, because like we were talking 
each container will have its own kernel, right? Having its own kernel for an application means that's the limit of the world. That's the sky, literally. So by having GVisor's kernel attached to this container, that world is already contained, right? It's sort of a, you know, application cannot go further beyond the world that Sentry provides, the GVisor kernel. This kernel for container A, so one, and container B will get its own kernel. It's not the same kernel. It's the own kernel. The only thing we share is the host source kernel that the container can never, ever going to be, no, not I would say never, but uh, cannot talk at all. So that's the sort of a way that how these are sort of a separated, right? The application cannot see the other size world. Does that make sense? It does. Yes. There are a lot of engineering challenges to building GVisor. Yoshi, I think my understanding is you're a little bit more on the project management side of things, and Michael is deep in the weeds. I was looking at the GitHub commits. I think you're number three or four in terms of how much commitment you've made to GVisor. Could you both talk about your perspective on implementing building GVisor and some of the bigger engineering challenges you've had to solve? So my role as a product manager of, you know, you know, GK, you know, Google Kubernetes Engine and GVisor, my role is sort of, you know, find a profile and deliver products that users love and, you know, give sort of insight to engineering. What is for me is an amazing part, like just stunning part of GVisor is, yes, like I have a sort of background researching virtualization, virtual machines before it existed in the context until sort of a virtualization. This is the sort of a GVisor. When I found out GVisor inside Google and like how they built is just like mind blowing. It's just indeed, like you mentioned, this is one of perhaps the hardest or like a challenging project I could think about where I never even thought about doing that kind of thing. But they delivered, the team delivered and kept improving and improving, gathering internal users, now external users. So I just only have simple respect to kind of a tech geek, like a team on GVisor and like a person like Michael. So with that, I'll pass it over to Michael. Yeah, so yeah, GVisor is, you're definitely right, it's a very sort of challenging, ambitious project that I found super interesting to work on. From the technical challenge side, I think one of the biggest, most interesting areas we've worked with, obviously, is, you know, the Sentry intercepts application system calls and handles them. That means, effectively, the API we're providing to applications is the Linux API, and Linux is big. It has, you know, like I said, like 350 system calls, something like that. And there's lots of interesting, subtle behavior that we basically need to make sure we get right. And so it has been a very interesting challenge to sort of build out all those interfaces and really get all the nuances correct. And, you know, this is where we come down to, you know, we've written, I think we have something like 1,500 different unit tests for system calls that we run. You know, we write these tests. Is this how Linux works? See if the test passes. Okay, now we need to make sure GVisor has the same behavior. And there's just been all sorts of little nuances that you don't even think about or realize until you go to implement it and find out that Linux does something really weird that you read the man page for and it not mentioned or the man page was wrong or whatever because there's some subtle difference. Hmm. Well, as we begin to wrap up, I realize we probably still have not touched on the gratuitous detail of GVisor, but I'd love to know how this fits into the broader perspective of 
what Google is working on in open source and in the cloud. Because as I understand, this is kind of technology that has existed within Google for a while, but it's probably too tightly coupled to your architecture to just immediately open source what you have internally. So you kind of have you you have the added benefit of you know getting a reason to do a rewrite on internal software within Google. So it's kind of this you know clean slate. But I would also just love to know how it fits into the broader strategy of Google and Google Cloud. So to be clear, specifically on Gvisor, besides those apparently platform-specific ones, the code that you see, so for example, Sentry, Gopher, those mechanisms, the core, the core part of Gvisor is what it is. Right, we wanted to open source for because we thought that's an interesting approach for isolation. We wanted to sort of get feedback from the outside world. So in that sense, I don't think you don't need to necessarily, you know, there's no complexity around the Gvisor inside or outside in a broader perspective. Cool. So it's it's pretty direct open sourcing. And how how do you imagine it impacting the? kind of broader mission of Google's open source and cloud efforts right now? So I think you're touching, you know, a little bit more specific at why we open source Gvisor, right? Sure, yeah. So roughly at that time when we open source Gvisor in early 2018, there are probably two two things that are worth mentioning. One is that it's kind of a little bit neat, but yes, we did develop container isolation technology called Gvisor. And we gradually started seeing the VM-based approach at that time, Kata, for example, coming up in open source. Therefore, we thought that, you know what, like that's a very, you know, VM approach is totally understandable, but they realized that maybe it's only us that who actually went down this path. Isn't it actually really like important from a broader industry perspective to kind of share our own kind of approach and see how that goes? It was actually really, you know, more for advanced sort of a container security world with the work that we have kind of done. On the other front, the Kubernetes has already kind of become mainstream already at that time. And the container isolation, again, was sort of a, one of the key challenges. And the sort of a, now, now it's actually called runtime class, but there was a demand for defining uh, interfaces for such sandboxes. So there was a, because of the momentum, you know, we felt that it's important to open, you know, share what we have sort of built and see how that fits into the wider industry and also the Kubernetes community. That was how we kind of open sourced Gvisor back in 2018. Okay. Well, Yoshi and Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yoshi, thanks for your second appearance. Absolutely. And it's been fun talking about Gvisor. I'm sure we'll have more opportunities to talk about stuff in the future. Absolutely. Maybe yeah. we need a more further, further detail uh, <laughs> deep down. <laughs> an hour may not be enough, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. How low can we go? Okay, guys. Well, thanks a lot. Commercial open source software businesses build their business model around an open source software project. Software businesses built around open source software operate differently than those built around proprietary software. The Open Core Summit is a conference for commercial open source software. If you are building a business around open source software, check out the Open Core Summit, September 19th and 20th at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco. Go to opencoresummit.com to register. 
At OpenCore Summit, we'll discuss the engineering, business strategy, and investment landscape of commercial open-source software businesses. Speakers will include people from HashiCorp, GitLab, Confluent, MongoDB, and Docker. I will be emceeing the event, and I'm hoping to do some on-stage podcast-style dialogues. I'm excited about the OpenCore Summit because open-source software is the future. Most businesses don't gain that much by having their software be proprietary. And as it becomes easier to build secure software, there will be even fewer reasons not to open source your code. I love commercial open source businesses because there are so many interesting technical problems. You got governance issues, you got a strange business model. I'm looking forward to exploring these curiosities at the Open Core Summit, and I hope to see you there. If you want to attend, check out opencoresummit.com. The conference is September 19th and 20th in San Francisco. Open source is changing the world of software, and it's changing the world that we live in. Check out the Open Core Summit by going to opencoresummit.com. Wow! 